0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, March 10th, 2023. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Washington commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute senior fellow, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. Christine Rosen is out today. With us in her stead is Free Beacon editor, Eliana Johnson. Hi, Eliana.
1: Hi, John. Thanks for having me.
0: Also co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, Inkstained Wretches, available every Friday morning <clears throat> in your podcast inbox. Uh, lots of different things today. <clears throat> Very good job numbers. Second month in a row, which we've had really good job numbers. Um, there's a lot of surprise being expressed about good job numbers. and And then I was reading one of these stories this morning about how nobody expected that after the pandemic... Uh, there would be really good job numbers and things like that. And then I was I was reading this and I was thinking, wait, that's not right. It, after the pandemic, everybody thought there was going to be an economic boom after the pandemic because there was so much pent-up demand and pent-up supply chain issues and all of that. And I, I don't know. I, I read these things and then I keep remembering that macroeconomics is, 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 is horse patootie and that we should <laughs> stop listening to everything, all these analyses of this. Uh, 24 trillion dollar economy because nobody knows anything and they're all stupid and they come up with these theories and the common sense is like thrown out the window um so i'm now in my nihilistic i'm stopping i'm not listening to anybody anymore (laughs) well you know what's funny is there
2: is this narrative uh that developed uh during the 2020 campaign propagated by biden that the um pandemic caused a huge economic crisis and a economic contraction on, uh on par with uh the great recession and th- you know that was true for the first <clears throat> i'd say quarter two first two quarters after the pandemic hit in march of uh 2020 but biden inherited a growing economy and so much of his um r- rationales for his massive spending was well we have to dig out of this big hole we have to dig out of this big hole when, in fact he clearly overspent and that helped generate the inflation. Um, So a lot of this is kind of looking back and saying, oh, it was so terrible. It was so terrible. I mean, it was for the first six months or so, but the American economy has uh, amazing um, capacity to recover. And it was already recovering by the time Biden took office. The the other point, I think on the jobs numbers, they were pretty impressive. Uh, I think the call was for about 255, 255, 255,000 new jobs. And it came, the number came in at 311,000. So significantly higher than uh, what was being predicted. But what that means is Jerome Powell's um, efforts to uh, continue to raise interest rates will proceed uh, because this economy is still running pretty hot. Inflation is not under control. People are still being hired. And that, I think, sets up Biden uh, for perhaps some trouble down the road. Everyone's been saying, oh, the recession's are coming, the recession's coming, the recession's coming. And we had those two consecutive quarters of negative growth uh, last year, which, you know, historically that is what a recession is. But they were mild. And we went back to um, growth shortly after the timing of a recession. If it happens, is very important because if it happens next year in the middle of a presidential
0: election, Biden's in big trouble. Right. Well, the other way of looking at this is that we had a recession last year, but it wasn't really a recession because it didn't feel like a recession. And uh, not only were liberal economists trying to redefine recession so that they wouldn't have to call this a recession in the middle of Biden's effort to uh, and the Democrats effort not to be destroyed in the midterm elections. It's just a question of what people feel. Do they feel like they're poor? Do they feel like things are bad? And that that's that's not definable until it happens. Like uh, macro numbers will be whatever they were. People did not feel like the economy had, had turned on them. Maybe they felt like inflation had turned on them, but they didn't feel like, you know, they didn't feel bad in the way that they, you might've thought that they were going to feel bad. So in, th- in that sense, this is all evanescent. Like we just don't yeah. know. I think that's a great point.
2: I just want to add, um, you know, there's the, there's the growth number, which a lot of people pay attention to. Then there's the jobs number, which a lot of people, especially in Washington, pay attention to. But the real number that matters is uh, wages and what people are feeling. And the truth is because wage growth has been outpaced by inflation now for several years, most Americans have a very dismal view of this economy. And you know, for 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 a while now if you ask them is the economy in recession? They'll say yes because yeah. their standard of living has been declining under Biden. And that's a that's going to be a challenge for him whether
0: or not we go into a recession, right? But but basically I think Eliana what we have here is the fact that um All politics, a lot of politics is luck. And Biden, I think, has found himself having had a pretty good run of luck relating to the economy, given the fact that his policies helped, um, you know, deepen the inflation or or speed up or however you want to call it, the inflationary spiral. And you just can't deny that, you know, every month he kind of like is spared a kind of... um, polling guillotine by the fact that you know the numbers come out and they're not so bad
1: well i agree with that in part but um Mm. part of biden's luck has been in uh, in republicans conduct and their ability to recruit candidates in that I do think that the average American doesn't, uh, you know, really feels inflation. And Biden's polling is abysmal. And it was during the midterms. Uh, It's just that the... Voter, The Republican candidates were so bad that voters actually preferred the Democrats to the Republicans. And I do think that's a lesson Republicans should keep in mind as they go into 2024. And again, I think it is why you see somebody like Mitch McConnell trying to swat away the Tucker Carlson uh, attempts to whitewash January 6th, because he, among others, and there are other Republicans uh, trying to swat this back, speaking out against it, Um, because they know that 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 sort of theme and and keeping that in the news is politically bad for Republicans.
3: You know, I'm I'm reminded of. um, Just to jump back to the uh, uh, to Biden's good fortune with the economy here and um, how Matt is saying that he, in fact, inherited uh, uh, a recovery Um, so much of what we we try to decipher in this economy has to do with all the political massaging going on in the media. Because th- this reminds me so much of the the denial of the V shaped recovery from the pandemic. It's like every every time, and they would they would put the the sort of V up on the screen and say, no, no, that's 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 not a V. It's a we're, different we're, we're letter. not bouncing it's, straight back. Yeah, yet.
2: it's a K. It's a K shaped recovery, <laughs> right, or it's right. a
0: it's an N shaped recovery. Right, And Yeah, yeah. Okay, I got to quickly move into one thing about the pandemic. We keep, I mean, you know, it's like the internal return to the pandemic subject. Uh, I, the Washington Post apparently has decided to do an endless series this month on the fourth anniversary of the pandemic yesterday, where they did the story we talked about, about how it's so terrible that conservatives have taken all these tools out of the toolbox for the next pandemic uh, it's not going to be so easy <clears throat> for people to just shut businesses and schools down the way it was this time.
1: Right. It's all the like, all the wonderful tools the Democrats used to respond so capably to the first pandemic. Exactly. Uh, so oh there's God. another. We might not be so on our toes, on our yeah. tiptoes next time around.
0: Yeah. And there's another story today, also by Joel Aikenbach, who co-wrote yesterday's story, about how, um, wow, we really responded really fast the last time. It was amazing. And then there's this in, interesting admission, because he talked to Deborah Burks, who was the White House coordinator of the COVID response and all this, how they went to Trump to talk him into this notion that it would be two weeks to, to stop the spread. But they knew they were lying to him. They knew it wasn't going to be two weeks, but that was the best they could sell him. So all they wanted to do was get him to say, we're going to shut everything down for two weeks so that then... As in the period in which it was two weeks to stop the spread, they could sit down with him and scare the bejesus out of him and tell him that two million people would die unless they kept kept on to it, and they preach this uh, without any evidence that, in fact, their projection of two million deaths without having you know forced everything to shut down was actually going to happen, or that that there's any evidence that that idea that incredibly dark notion that two million Americans would die in the year 2020 if we didn't do what we did, that that is not now very much in question based on the epidemiological pattern and the fact that, okay, so that's one thing. Now I want to go to the other thing and then ask you guys about this. Uh, Zenopter Feki, I don't know how to pronounce her name, who wrote a lot about the uh, pandemic for The Atlantic and is now a columnist for The New York Times, has a piece that is jaw dropping. Today, uh, uh, what was it like two or three weeks ago? Um, this uh, massive study of studies came out um, by the Cochrane. What do you, The Cochrane Review, which Cochran does Review. studies of studies, and uh, what it said was that masking was ineffectual. And the lead author of the study said, uh, There is no evidence that they make any difference. The Cochrane Review's editor in chief, the editor in chief of the Cochrane Library, I don't really understand how this all works or who's what, has now said that that is not what the study said. And she's apologizing for saying that masking didn't work because that's not what the study said except that the author of the study and she is not the author of the study said the study says that masking didn't work but the bureaucrat who is is sort of in charge of the Cochrane review is now telling Zanep Trefeki that that is not what the study said and that the study said that masking they couldn't determine whether masking was or was not effectual because there weren't enough Double-blind studies or something like that. And of course, so that's what they're saying to... now. You're right. They didn't say that in the actual review, right? The guy who wrote the study said the study <laughs> right. said that masking was ineffectual. Right. Some bureaucrat in the organization is now having gotten blowback. Is now telling Zanetrowecki of the New York Times that that's not what the study said. Now I Real... believe I believe that, like as D. D. H. Lawrence said, trust the tale. Not the teller, meaning, like in fiction, you can't just because a novelist says that his novel is about this, that doesn't mean that that's actually what his novel is about. But the guy who did the study said that he determined that masking was
3: ineffectual. You Real masking—I've ha- never seen anything like this ever. Real masking has never been tried. That—that's <laughs> well, sort of yeah. That's it. Right. <laughs>
1: but- the Beacon covered this. Uh, what I think is happening here is that um, the Free Beacon covered this study. I, I it had to have been a month ago, maybe six weeks yeah. ago. Then there then John Tierney wrote about it in Barry Weiss's outlet, The Free Press. And now the New York Times is writing about it. And so I think there must be real panic in the um, I'm gonna say the medical community, as defined by um the politico medical establishment as personified by Anthony Fauci. Um, this makes them look incredibly foolish. Um, it it is obvious that they did not know what they were talking about and that they have been. Um, mandating that people do incredibly intrusive and annoying things when there was no evidence that they should do these things so they they once again have to lie to people they lied to people in the beginning about uh don't mask because there was a shortage of mask masks and they wanted to preserve the mask for the real doctors oh now everybody has to wear a mask you know anthony, I we need to get anthony fauci now about do we have to wear a mask next thanksgiving or whatever um but it's it's a constant um i think that is what ha- what's happening here they're worried that this is going to get too much widespread coverage
0: okay yeah, yeah you know, let me just let me just go back to Xenempter Feki's piece because so the the guy who ran the study said it means that masking doesn't work. Uh, the editor of the of the Cochrane Review says that that's a misinterpretation of his own results. Then a doctor and academic who serves on the Cochrane editorial board, told me, she says, the review couldn't arrive at a firm conclusion because there weren't enough high-quality randomized trials with high rates of mask adherence. Okay, why did they publish the study then? If the study didn't have enough data to do the study, then they published the study because uh, there were 78 studies in the review, but only 10 of them focused on what happens when people wear masks versus when they don't. So that's 10 out of 78. Okay, there weren't that many studies anyway, but what are you now saying? We shouldn't have published the study at all because the studies, the data that we were putting into the study was inherently flawed? So what are you blaming the guy for who, Tom Jefferson, who said of the masks that there's just no evidence that they make any difference?
2: Right. Well, they're not. I mean, they're actually not retracting the study of studies. That's what's so funny. I mean, they're uh, so... First, they didn't say at the outset that, well, you know, the data is somewhat unreliable. They published the study. People read it. The writer of, of the study said this shows that the mass didn't work. But now they're not saying, oh, we take it all back. What they're saying is even more condescending, which is it's been misinterpreted. The little people, they didn't understand how sophisticated we are, the experts. They didn't understand. They took this thing and you misinterpret it for your own reasons and said that it showed that masks didn't work. So they're trying to have it both ways. But I think the larger story here, when you look at the op-ed we're talking about in the New York Times and the Joel Achenbach piece in the Post is the kind of elite battle over COVID hasn't ended. So there's still a huge number of experts and a huge number of liberals um, who think that Keep on masking, keep on vaccinating, uh, be ready at the drop of a hat in order to impose lockdowns. They still very much believe in this, and they are now basically striking back against, you know, one, the growing um, voices on on the political right and even in the center and even the president himself saying the pandemic's over, trying to move on with their lives. And then the actual behavior of Americans, where it's just clear, Americans now are back to normal. We're back to we're back
0: to uh, the way that we lived in February of 2020. I mean, we're still I don't living. Think with it's it. February 2020. Look, I, it depends on where you live. I'm sure in 80 percent of the country it's like that. I'm telling you right now. Hey, what would you say? I don't know what it's like in D.C. I would say 10 to 15 percent of the people you see in in Manhattan are masked. That, uh, granted, I that's took, one place, right? But I, I took that's the train two today, million that would, people a day.
3: What that was the case on the subway today? Yeah,
0: yeah. So I'm saying, like, that's that's like you know, there's 1.6 to two million people in, in in Manhattan on a daily basis. That's a lot of people, and so and that, of course, is the audience for Zeynep Terfeki. Right. Although a lot of people that you see masking, I think, are people who were f- afraid of the vaccine didn't get vaccinated and are now wearing masks because they don't want to get vaccinated because they're afraid of the they're afraid of the virus and they're afraid of the vaccine and this is the default uh position
3: i think that's i important. also i i assume when i see people with masks these days that they have it or they're getting over it uh could the be. actual you know yeah,
0: there could in other words i think there are four or five different categories of people yeah. who are still masking but, but i think what's interesting here is the nature of this counter response that you're talking about, Matt, which is to say the organization that puts out the study that says that masking was ineffectual lead author of the study says masking is ineffectual then says our study doesn't say masking is ineffectual. It is literally who are you going to believe me or your lying eyes? Like
3: that, I think is their
0: study. They published the study The person who was the lead author of the study said this is what the study said, and people who weren't the authors of the study, who work for the organization, are ideologically horrified by the response to the study and now are attempting to correct their own study that they didn't do but that was verified and authorized by their own organization. I cannot think of an analog to this.
3: But this is, I think, you know, another part of, of what Matt says is the big story here is that, yes, this elite argument is 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 not over, and but it's never going to be resolved with data like that that doesn't happen now um because every side can analyze data into oblivion uh over and over again. there's it's sort of it's never conclusive anymore, even if it is, it's not. But it's
0: their own data. It's their own study. <clears throat> this isn't like Jay Bhattacharya <clears throat> did a study. This is as though Jay Bhattacharya denies that. Comes out and says that masking was was good. I mean, that's that's the that's the analogy
2: here. What's the uh, what's it- the Fitzgerald line that you know the sign of a first-rate mind is to hold two contradictory (laughs) ideas at once. That's clearly what's happening at the Cochrane Review. They must have some very high-rate minds there because they are both (laughs) confirming that masks don't work and saying,
0: no, they really do. Also, why are they dying on this hill? Like, the, the simple fact of the matter is that you can say that at the time, given everything that there was and the fear that was totally justified, that this was the response to trying to help people deal with an unprecedented health threat, and that they did what they had to do with the information they had at the time, and there was junk science and bad ideas being that were coming off from uh, places uh, on the right that were skeptical of the seriousness of the virus. So that that was real. You know, Richard Epstein is a libertarian you know, law professors said 5,000 people would die from COVID. Like, it's not like there wasn't bad thinking about this that, you know, that left unchecked or unresponded to could have let a lot of people do things that might have been very reckless. Having said that, you know, the fact pattern changes. They really want to die on the hill of, we need to say that masking was okay. It's okay to have been, all I'm saying is, it's kind of okay to have been wrong about this, because you were trying to save lives the best way you knew how, without any idea of wh- how to mitigate the threat of an unprecedented virus. The problem is that these people then have brought in every every aspect of their response. It was it was, you know, there was no lab leak. You shouldn't wear masks until suddenly you should only wear masks. You should go to Chinatown and support Asian businesses so that you don't look racist. To you have to stay inside forever and we'll lock, we'll we'll take padlocks off playgrounds. And then of course, no no no, it's really important to protest the killing of George Floyd. So 25 million people can go demonstrate for three weeks yeah, while I mean, everybody think- else stays inside. I think you're absolutely right to point out just kind of the comprehensiveness of the
2: response that we've been seeing in recent days, whether it's the fight over the lab leak hypothesis or it's this batch of articles in the Washington Post, which, uh, as an aside, you know, um, as Fred Barnes once put it to me, the most, the deadliest. Words in journalism are first in a series. So you've been you've been a very yeah. good follower of the news, John, to read all of these articles. But so it, then you have the so the series in the Washington Post, and now we have this op-ed in the New York Times. It puts me in mind of um the uh, former CIA analyst Martin Guri, who's written about the revolt of the public, right? And how uh technology enables basically large crowds to um override uh institutional elites and that's i think what's happened with the american response now as we get into the fourth year after uh covid changed our society i do manhattan notwithstanding most i think most of yeah. the country is just not thinking about the pandemic you do not see masks uh, at any rate the it um at the same rate that you did even in dc um uh, uh, even a year ago. And so what that means is the elites are trying to reassure themselves, but also lay the predicate if there is another pandemic that they can go back to the same toolkit. Um, and I do think it's important to to note one aspect of Guri's thesis, which is the elites can rage and rage and rage and make all these arguments in the New York Times or The Washington Post. But at the end of the day, the power of the crowd is what's going to matter, right? It's so oh. they're going to be ineffective, yeah. I think, in
3: making this um, argument. The perfect example here is that most Americans now believe in the lab leak theory uh, and not the wet market version.
0: By the way, that is all political persuasions, right? That's de- Democrats are like close to 60 percent believe the lab leak Independents too. And Republicans are like. 85 to 90 percent, Nate Silver calls us a supermajority, now believes in the plausibility of the lab leak theory, despite efforts to crush it. Now, that's, of course, responses to the Biden administration's own findings. Biden administration's Energy Department finds, uh, you know, with a low level of certainty that that the virus originated in the, in the uh, Wuhan lab, and so did the FBI under Biden.
3: But so, I, I Yeah, I I do think, John, when you talk about uh, why die on this hill, um, (coughs) the masking debate is a little less political than the other issues around this in in the sense that I think there are there's a large group of people, small as a percentage, but large in real numbers who are terrified of masks going away. Uh, They're they're not giving up their own. and I think that is a big motivating factor in this in this particular de- in this particular debate.
1: One of the things that I've been most struck by that I do think captures a lot of this is that it, Matt's right in D.C. Nobody wears masks anymore. The one place that they are required that I go is medical offices, um, which is these these people should have been the first to give them up, and it is unbelievably strange that in medical and dental offices in this city, um, my dermatologist requires them, um, this, that, and the other, you've got to put on a mask and um, they accept the, you know, the flimsiest paper masks. And I do think that it's, it is a symbol of like the, the corruption of the elites on this. And, you know, to what John was saying earlier, I wondered throughout this, Why? Why wasn't it that from the outset, um, somebody like Fauci or somebody like the president, whether it was Trump or Biden, couldn't say there's a lot we don't know right now and things are going to change as we learn more. That doesn't seem so hard. And yet none of the people, you know, quote unquote, in charge during this have ever said anything approximating that. We're learning, we're adapting. This is an unprecedented situation. Right. There's a ton we don't know. And we're going to inform you as we find out more.
0: Well, Jim Meggs, <clears throat> our uh, tech commentary columnist, years ago did a piece about this uh, case of a, a response to um, an, an earthquake uh, in, in Alaska. Um, uh, sort of extraordinary story in which he he sort of lays out the fact that the first thing that authorities believe that at a time of crisis is they need to show control and resolve and a sense that they're in command because the public will lose its cookies and everybody will go crazy and there'll be a panic and a hysteria and all of that. And that this idea uh, flies in the face of actual be- human behavior in response to crises, which is that people get very sober, they get very prudent, they come together they come together collectively, naturally, to solve problems and deal with problems. And that this is a bias on the part of the expert class that ordinary people can't be trusted with serious information because they can't handle it emotionally. And that that is, I think, very much what the story was here. Trump has this had this bias. He could never admit fault. He could never admit he'd know anything. Everything had to be he knew everything and Fauci's the same way and everybody else is the same way. Fauci responded yesterday to Robert Redfield the head of the CDC saying um you know that he had been cut out of conversations on the lab leak question uh by saying that uh, Redfield essentially saying Redfield was lying. But uh then he also said Redfield was like no one cut out of the conversations and then he said well, I wasn't <coughs> I wasn't the person who was uh you know like organizing those phone calls. Um so don't blame me. So on the one hand he says nobody was <coughs> nobody was you know trying to silence the uh you know this uh, this uh this lab leak theory. And on the other hand he was saying I don't really know whether somebody was trying to silence the lab leak theory because I wasn't the person in charge. So, so he could say Redfield's not being fair to me. I wasn't the person in charge, but then he shouldn't then say nobody was trying to silence Redfield. Why is he, why does he, why is he combining the two? He could say, it wasn't me, but he doesn't say it wasn't me because even he can't bear the idea that he wasn't in charge of all the decision-making. It's just a very interesting mindset. I think you see there let's let's shift gears for a minute and talk about another sort of amazing thing that's going on, which is the story that hit the New York times yesterday about six o'clock that uh, Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA is on the verge of indicting uh, Donald Trump uh, on charges relating to the payout to stormy Daniels, the $130,000 paid out to stormy Daniels, uh, through Trump, through the National Enquirer, to silence her about their night together in 2015. Um, The New York Times story simultaneously says he's about to be indicted in this unprecedented moment, and then also casts very harsh doubt on the wisdom of this indictment, given what they know. It says bragg is on the verge of using an untested theory of how to indict him for a felony if he did indeed indicts him for a felony that it's a creative use of the law rather than a you know open and shut case uh, use of the law and i'm not going to go into the details because i don't really understand it there's one thing that's a misdemeanor but if you add Knowledge of forethought, then it becomes about a second crime, it becomes a felony, but whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, And I read this, and I have two thoughts, one of which is, I cannot believe that this is actually going to happen if the case is as shoddy as even the New York Times makes it sound. And the other is, I don't think this story came from Bragg's office. If you read the story really carefully, it kind of sounds like it came from Trump's lawyers. And therefore, Trump's lawyers may be characterizing it as solely Bragg is about to indict him relating to this payoff to Michael Cohen through the National Enquirer and da 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 But if I'm right and this story came from Trump's people, they don't know what Bragg has. They don't know what Bragg is actually, <clears throat> would, would actually indict him on. And uh, they don't know what Trump's now uh, convicted uh, CFO Alan Weisselberg might have told them, since he is now was cooperating with them. And so I have two thinking. One of which is he already <clears throat> he decided last year, <clears throat> brag. I'm sorry that he wasn't going to bring a crappy case against Trump, and therefore he dropped some of the charges he dropped an investigation thus en- enraging the people in his office who were doing this investigation and then he reopened the investigation or reignited a push to get trump on this stormy daniels stuff uh i don't feel like he wouldn't do that unless there was some there there and that new information time, yeah yeah like uh, i really i mean
2: as the dude says, does he in want to bring a Big bad, Lebowski, does, yeah.
0: New facts have come to light. I mean, uh, does he want to bring a bad case against Trump? Like, I, I, I why would you want to do that? That would well, be because like, I
2: think, I think it's related to what we we're just talking about. I mean, there's certain attitudes and mentalities that you, you just cannot escape if, if, if you come if you're part of a, a of. Of a certain context and, and world and in this case it's the uh legal commun the legal community's war against Donald Trump and the pressures there to somehow find a way to make Trump pay uh legally <laughs> uh is so overwhelming that you might be pressure you might be pushed into a situation of bringing a case that you uh is very risky to prove I mean my favorite part of Uh, Not the actual news break, but a follow on story that The Times published today trying to kind of lay out what's at work here is a quote where the writers go, well, hush money is not inherently illegal. The prosecutors could argue that the one hundred and thirty thousand dollar payout effectively became an improper donation to Mr. Trump's campaign under the theory that it benefited his candidacy because it silenced (laughs) Ms. Daniels Um that that doesn't make any sense to me because it was who was the donation to it was trump's money <laughs> i guess it's trump's money through michael cohen and then there they would say that it was a an improper do- it's so confusing right and then the underlying fact is it it's not i i mean that's what's always been my response to the stormy daniels controversy because it's been going on for years as we all know As the time says, hush money is not necessarily illegal if they're trying to pay to make the story go away. And what's different here is the usual kind of way to make these stories go away that Trump had practiced with the National Enquirer was that the National Enquirer would buy the exclusive rights to the story and then, of course, not never publish it. This was different because for whatever reason, the National Enquirer didn't want to do that. And so they had Cohen do it instead. But even there, the, you you know, the illegality of
0: that is kind of—it's a mystery to me. Now, some people do. By the think way, you could look at it. I, I'm not going to defend Trump on this, but you could look at it in reverse, which is to say, he and Stormy Daniels, something happened. He paid her off. He paid her off way earlier and got her to sign a non-disclosure agreement. That was where <laughs> this whole dance and gavotte with Michael Avenatti started. Right. Because she wanted to be released from her non-disclosure agreement so that she could tell the world what Trump had happened between her and Trump, right? So in 2015 or 2016 or whatever, this stuff happened with David uh, Picker and the National Enquirer, um, is that his name? Do I have his name right? Picker. I'm sorry. There's a, there was a movie producer named Picker. Um, uh, she was like double dipping. <clears throat> like you could call that blackmail. You could go in the reverse. You could like go at Stormy Daniels for, for extortion. Like she was, she she had already gotten, she'd had a bite at the apple. What? He paid her, she signed something, and then she came back to him and said, Screw you, pay me more. Or I'm gonna. And then it just so happened that she, being stupid, went to a friend of Trump's to try to get the money. You know, she should have gone to David Korn. And not to David Pecker, you know, because she wanted money from David Pecker. Anyway,
1: my other favorite part of this story is the, the paragraph that follows the one that Matt read is combining the criminal charge with a violation of state election law would be a novel legal theory for any criminal case, let alone one against the former president, raising the possibility that a judge or appellate court could throw it out or reduce the felony charge to a misdemeanor. So that, that's the technical aspect. But I think there is a public opinion aspect to all of this, which, of course, like these prosecutors in New York, they're they're convinced emotionally that Trump is a criminal. Um, and so they need to find the technical reasons why to throw him in jail. But the Stormy Daniels thing, it seems to me that like regular people can understand why this happened and are not that outraged by it. Like, there's a lot that Trump does that outrages me. This is not one of those things. Well,
2: think um, think about that. I mean, there' on, are three
1: people get it. Like, cheated on your wife and you want to pay to shut up the mistress? Like, okay, you know.
2: There are three different investigations going on to Trump right now, right? I mean, there's this one in Manhattan with Stormy Daniels. There's the Georgia investigation, the Fulton County District Attorney into whether he uh broke the law trying to get votes in Georgia to overturn the result there. And then there's the special counsel investigation out of D.C., which is investigating um, uh, January 6th and the documents. OK, so those are all the it, to, to arrive finally at the one indictment is over Stormy Daniels
0: is a gift to Trump. It's
2: just yeah, a, it's right. a total I, gift. That's to why,
0: think, Abe, that's why I, I wonder, I, ahead, but, why I wonder, go ahead, why wonder whether. As I said, I think this story came from Trump's people, and I think it is characterized in the way that is best for Trump. That's weird that the New York Times story is as sort of I wouldn't call it favorably disposed, but it kind of spins it in Trump's direction. And I don't know that we know that this is the all of it. like I still think I we're have already in- go ahead
3: Sorry. I have zero problem believing that Alvin Bragg put together a flimsy case against Trump. Um, I find it completely plausible that that's exactly what has happened. And, and yet yeah, the leak may have come from Trump from from Trump's lawyers. But this is this is the characteristic of 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 that side of the of the of the furor this this whole time, you know, like the the overreaction there, there, the, there, as we've said many times, he is, you know, uh, framed and guilty, you know. Uh, and this is, this is what they do to him.
0: Well, look, it's like when, when they got the tax records, when the tax records were leaked to the New York times, 20 years of his taxes, um, you know, a, a, a really significant breach of federal law that has never been adequately adjudicated or ever adjudicated. Um. And what did they find? They found that he didn't break the law. Like it's like it's like the, you know, um he he did everything he did. It's very sleazy, it's very this, it's very that. He claimed a billion dollars in losses, so he didn't pay taxes for 15 years and all of that. And guess what? That was all legal. And he'd been saying that in public. All yeah. along. That was yeah. that was his I'm whole smart. argument in 2015. I'm smart. My my yeah. goal, right? My goal as a businessman <laughs> is to pay as little in taxes as possible. <laughs> and I pulled it off. Like you should be impressed with me. And yeah, um, and the mega world starts yeah. clapping. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh man. Uh I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know. I'm just saying that that I wouldn't I wouldn't take it as a I wouldn't take it as gospel that this is all all that Bragg has. Well, as and I say I don't I don't know, this, think this story t- came from Bragg, but I, I kind of
3: remember went. thinking similar things at the very start of the uh, Russia collusion <laughs> investigation. Yeah, to too. Be, yeah,
0: there had, had to, to be, be more than this. stuff there. But, but also know, think of it true. this
2: way. It's not the only investigation, even if. Bra- so let's say um, the Trump, the best case for Trump is Bragg does go ahead and file these charges. And so Trump can say uh, political prosecution There's a flim- flimsy case and everything. But if Bragg is willing to do this with the facts that we have available to us, it also suggests that someone like uh, the uh, DA in Fulton County, uh, Fonnie Willis, uh, is going to go ahead with it. And it also suggests that maybe Jack Smith, the special counsel, is going to go ahead with it too. So one political prosecution, I think, may be a... um, problem that trump can handle or respond to or you know um kind of navigate around if he has three yeah by the end of the year that that is kind of an overwhelming challenge i mean just in terms of his time right um and that may be actually what
0: these prosecutors are thinking in the back of their minds and by the way not just not just in terms of his time but in terms of his candidacy because as i see it like he he has been showing renewed life as a presidential candidate by putting things on the front burner that are not simply about him and being able to put some of his own obsessions on the back burner that will be impossible for him in an atmosphere in which he's running as the martyred person who is you know being pursued by this you know three-headed hydra I, and and therefore the candidacy will solely be about him it will be like when uh, lenny bruce the comedian uh ended up he stopped telling jokes and started people came to see his set and he just would read from the transcripts of his court proceedings uh and and people would say tell jokes like so start yelling at him from the stage that he should tell jokes because they didn't want to hear about his obscenity trials in 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 New York and San Francisco. Like that's Trump that's that's the other danger to Trump is that um he found a sweet spot in the last couple of weeks and they could really knock him off his knock him off that 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 course. Um, you know uh, so that's the question what will Trump spring be like? You know what your spring should be like? You should be putting some life, breathing some life into your own backyard with fastgrowingtrees.com. From shade to fresh fruit to privacy and natural beauty, let FastGrowingTrees.com help you plant your dream garden with their expert advice and fast, reliable shipping. FastGrowingTrees.com's plant experts curate thousands of easy-to-grow plant, shrub, and tree varieties for your unique climate. Meyer lemons to evergreens and everything in between. No more waiting on long lines and hauling heavy plants around with FastGrowingTrees.com. You order online and your plants arrive at your door in just a few days. And with that 30-day alive and thrive guarantee, you know everything will look great fresh out of the box. So join over 1.5 million happy growing fast growing trees customers. Go to FastGrowingTrees.com slash commentary now to get 15% off your entire order. Get 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com slash commentary um we got news today that uh uh xi jinping has essentially now been anointed president for life of china he just got a unprecedented third term and everybody who is his you know is his acolyte is now in charge of figuring out who will continue to rule later and uh despite um all of the difficulties of the last couple of years and the COVID zero and this and that, and the other thing he has consolidated his power to an extent that I think even dwarfs uh, Mao. And here we are. And this comes in the, this comes right after this, of course, confrontation with the United States or whatever the hell we want to call it over the balloons and the shoot down of the balloon in the Atlantic. And, and uh, that of course occasioned, um, a uh, thrilled response by Republicans to what appeared to be the fecklessness of the Biden administration in responding to the first giant 200 foot long uh, balloon seen over Billings, Montana and letting it fly the length of the United States into the Atlantic where it was shot down. Um, and the Biden people were embarrassed and humiliated. And then they dug up the fact that supposedly there were balloons during the trump administration which came as news to senior trump officials in in both the intelligence and foreign policy communities and the free beacon has now surfaced the source of the news that there were balloons during the trump administration can you tell us about this breaking story in the free beacon
1: okay yes that was a lot um <laughs> I love this. I, I was trying
0: I was just trying to get to your yes, breaking yes, story was, by connecting it to the artful, news today. Yes.
1: Such an artful transition. Um so interesting. I-, I love the story about the uh Biden administration's leaks on the balloon because it gives a real inside look about how these media wars and information wars are played in Washington, DC. So Um, Adam Credo at the Free Beacon reports that Marco Rubio and Roger Wicker uh, allege that a top Pentagon official, Colin Call, leaked the classified information to reporters that um, in as the Biden administration was dealing with this China balloon fiasco. um, Oh, there were tons of balloons during the Trump administration. And you'll recall, we saw those stories. And what he left out was that the Trump administration discovered those balloons after the pre- Trump left office. You know, news of the, the the fact that they had been in the United States was discovered um, later. They didn't know it while it was flying over Montana. Uh, contrast that with the Trump administration, which knew it was flying over Montana and did not disclose that to the American public. It was, uh, you know, it was discovered by uh, Montanans looking up at the sky. But anyhow, um, so we get it. We get a window into what actually happened here, how this information got out and the extent to which the Biden administration was panicking and trying to fight back um, and do damage control um, over the Chinese balloon situation. And I do think the Xi getting uh, anointed president for life and at the same time, and I know we'll get to it, Brokering this deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran, um, a task at which other countries have failed, um, does uh, underline the extent to which it is important that the Biden administration pushes back on Beijing, which we have not seen it do over the over the balloon situation.
0: Matt, can we talk about Colin Call a little bit? Because it's interesting that he is the leaker, according to Marco Rubio and Roger Wicker of Mississippi. Um, because Colin Call is the undersecretary of defense for policy. So that's a wonky job in the Pentagon. Why would he be retailing a hit story on Trump and the balloons that to protect Biden? Well, he's um, a very political. He's a political. Right. Well, that's operator. what I'm saying. So yeah. Who, I mean, who, who I'm, he, I'm not McCall. a fan. I'm not, I'm not right. surprised <laughs> when I
2: read this headline. Yeah. not a big fan of, of his He's major architect and defender of the Iran nuclear deal. During the, he's an Obama fixture who uh, got a high level Pentagon job under Biden. He uh, he has been um, at the forefront of kind of the Biden administration's uh, passive aggressive uh, r- dealings in arming Ukraine for you know the whole tank debate. For example, a couple months ago, he was the one saying, oh, they don't really need the tanks, and you know we we will give them." what they need when they need it and of course they end end up do uh supporting the tanks but you know tanks that won't arrive there for a while so uh, if you recall uh, another great free beacon story uh from the beginnings of the biden administration this series written by uh alana goodman it was into colin call's tweets you know and some of the very partisan tweets he had been um Issuing posting during the Trump administration, uh, and uh, it, it wasn't enough to get him derailed from confirmation. But he's a political actor, and so I can I can easily see him recognizing that uh, the Biden administration had completely fumbled on the response to the balloon, and in the uh, hurried attempts to push back, leaking this information, which, as Eliana says, was, was very misleading. Yeah, uh, because it was there was stuff that the Pentagon knew, but that wasn't communicated to any uh, any
0: decision makers. Right. Well, um, or, or what happened was once they saw the balloon, they saw the size of the balloon, they saw the extent of the balloon. They were like, oh, that's what that was four years ago that we couldn't make sense out of. It's not. Right. Oh, there was a balloon, but we're not telling the White House. It is that the fact pattern of the balloon suddenly revealed to them some. UFO information that they hadn't understood during the Trump administration. That's yeah, I mean, I, I think they it. knew what the balloon was, uh,
2: and just didn't want to do anything about it until, as Eliana mentioned, the Montanans,
0: right, <laughs> were like, "No, but that's that thing? balloon." But I'm saying right. what they did with the Trump. Oh no, there were balloons during the Trump administration. Was that there was something going on that during the Trump administration. Right. they couldn't really make sense out of and once it became clear what on earth was going on they then ret- they backfilled and said this stuff that that was inconclusive i mean that seemed to be the anyway i, I don't know no, why, but by by the you way, know it
2: also connects i'm, I'm sorry but it also look, connects to the um to the what you're saying about xi jinping assuming absolute control over china which is that i think the chinese wanted the american people to see this most recent balloon I mean, that's you know they came out with the story saying it was accidental. Mm-hmm. They set it off. They didn't understand where the winds would be taking it. Yeah. But you know, from what we understand of this uh, sub-atmospheric flight vehicle, as mm-hmm. a-, a wonk instructed me to call it, uh, it had some you know controls. Like you know, it, it, what, yeah. it was it can they could manipulate it, and I think it's of a piece of she's very aggressive posture towards the United States. I mean, we've seen some of the. Uh, comments coming from his recently elevated officials about, you know, America's got to watch what it say. You're playing with fire. This is the new China. And wh- I do think it's interesting, the the outgoing premier. So, you know, Ch- uh, she is the head of the, the general secretary of the Communist Party, which means he's the most ele- he's the biggest power. But then there's the premier, which is, you know, essentially like the prime minister, I guess. It's hard to analogize, you know, between a democracy and a totalitarian government. But the outgoing premier, Li Keqiang, he said something very interesting as he was leaving. He said, quote, heaven is looking at what humans are doing. The firmament has eyes. And what, what, what he's essentially doing is kind of rebuking she. He's saying, "Watch what you're doing here." I mean, he's doing it in the only way possible yeah. in the in the context of the Chinese Communist Party. But what that said to me is, she's control is not necessarily as perfect as he would have us want to believe. You know,
0: there's well, he there's... wouldn't need he wouldn't need this level of showy institutional command. Right. <clears throat> you know, if he had it, <clears throat> you know, he could more comfortably, you know like if you're robert moses and you controlled new york state you don't actually need to sh- show people that you control.
2: Right. New the york more state. power you have the more insecure you become in right
0: America. some yeah like,
2: well i mean like, that's like, that's that. the story
3: yeah. of putin too i mean yeah uh you know but 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 putin, i mean putin sort of made himself you know leader forever but he well, again, we don't know because yeah we, we we can't assess the public opinion in in countries like this, but he's popular, and he just
2: wasted half a dozen hypersonic missiles in in shutting down the electricity in Kiev, mainly because we're given to understand he's worried about pressure from his far right, from his nationalists, yeah. you know, I guess yeah. that's the far right. It's like we used to have a podcast right and writer at the free Beacon in the if we were Russian, it would be the far, far right. far far far, far far right right. yeah
0: exactly um so uh we can't even get into ukraine and Bakhmut and the use of hypersonic missiles which is which is really i mean i think you you really made the point that people aren't making which is people seem to be freaked out that he used hypersonic missiles and it does seem to be an unbelievable waste of an incredibly expensive um and sort of terrifying asset to sort of like fire them at a power state you know fire them at the you know at the at the at the fuse box yeah con Ed. Um, Kiev, yeah which can yeah. be which can actually be replaced <laughs> like that's not um i mean I, I feel terrible for the ukrainians and it's really te- you know but when you read this thing a huge escalation six people died it's like really that's where you're going with this i don't that does not seem like a huge advance in russian interests that was staged there um uh eliana anything else you want to you want to bring to the podcast today because i feel like we've been you know sort of like uh mansplaining uh, all hour
1: i i welcome <laughs> mansplaining so uh i don't think i have anything
0: um anyway so uh everybody really go subscribe to inkstain wretches that's eliana and chris styerwalt uh they're fantastic. It's a it's a it's a uh media criticism podcast. Um and uh, uh Chris is um Chris is the upbeat, cheerful peppy one, and Eliana is the um uh this is just uh, you know, this is just a blank show. Uh every every, every and the dynamic between them is delightful.
1: Well, we talked the Tucker tapes this week, um and the new Dominion filings in which Chris plays a central role. So um, so it's a good one this week.
0: It is, and and let me just say, I don't want to, I don't want to go all Nepo baby uh, on you, as I have, I have issues in that category myself. But um, uh, there is a really remarkable piece of uh, Tucker explaining um, at Powerline Blog uh, by Scott Johnson, who happens to be the father of Eliana Johnson, uh, sort of explaining why Tucker's defense of our advocacy for Q shaman uh, is preposterous. That is a definitive and everybody should go there and, and, and read it. Um, and uh, uh, I just want to say one other thing before we go, which is that Scott Johnson's mother, Eliana's grandmother, and my mother went to high school together in St. Paul, Minnesota. And, and she was friends. my aunt Connie's best friend. And so <clears throat> this is a, the mystic chords of memory are binding commentary and the free beacon, of course Matt also editor of the Free Beacon before Eliana, columnist for the free beacon Eliana's grandmother, my mother, Scott, us we're just we're just we're, uh, we're it's all the where family I
1: fall on this whole thing but yeah,
0: you I don't even want to get into you you where Good. you fall. <laughs> Where you fall is that your family supplied all of the jokes that I have told for 60, 70 years. Because Abe's father was the entertainment director at the uh, Concord. Yeah, so a leading borscht belt source of all borscht belt material for many decades. And his uncle choreographed Guys and Dolls. And many others. So that's that you, you come because you give us joy and pleasure and we just like bring the um, rigid Minnesota air to the crushing morosity of the commentary. podcast. All right. Thanks very much. <laughs> Thanks very much for joining us Thank today. You. I hope everybody has a great weekend and Eliana. Thank you. And for Matt and Abe and the absent Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.